put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. On this episode of Trumpet Dynamics. It's sort of like driving a Mario Kart, drive the race and not hit anything and not crash. You also see in the distance those like little ramps that accelerate you for like a couple of seconds. You can aim for those. You know, you're allowed to do that. It's not worth turning around going backwards to hit that. And the irony of all that is that by making opportunities, you're more likely to be invited by a cooler opportunity than you could even have created yourself anyway. Somebody that's getting stuff done, you want to become friends with those people, especially if you're not one of those people. But obviously, if you are one of those people, you're more likely to be invited into the circle. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is James Newcomb coming into your earballs. Grateful to bring on to the show someone who has been a friend of mine for a few years through the many iterations of this show. He's been a frequent guest. I have to say, before we actually introduce him, Chris and I have already been kind of chewing the fat a little bit on the call before we began the, the interview. And I'm going to have our little dialogue because we actually touched on some interesting things. And the dialogue is going to be on the mobile app that I have. And uh, it's just kind of bonus content for people who take the extra, go the extra mile and download the app and listen there. And you can find that app at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com slash app, A-P-P. My guest is former member of the Canadian Brass, longtime member of the Canadian Brass, won the gig when he was a very young man. He became not so young throughout the years, and I, I just always enjoy having him on the show because he brings a level of depth, and it's not just about trumpet, although he's, a, of course, a very fine trumpeter, but he also just has a very well-rounded worldview that he brings to his game, not just as a trumpeter, just his, his overall outlook on life, very well-rounded, very centered experience, getting to know him, and we'll get to know him a little bit better in this call. So welcome to the show, Chris Coletti. Hello, everybody. And for those of you that can't see me, I am blushing through my tan cheeks. <laughs> tan cheeks. So you you actually get some sun in upstate New York. Well, it's 50 and cloudy today, but okay. uh, yes, sometimes. So now that you <laughs> took the face mask off, now you can get a tan for your whole face, huh? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I said cheeks. I meant, I meant forehead. All right. Well, I actually uh, spoke with Chris in the fall of 2019, mere days after he had yeah. left his job with Canadian Brass, like full-time. Had you actually left or were you like on your way out? Let's say October of 2019. Yeah, that was, oh, you know, I'd have to double check. That was like the month that I actually played one of my last shows okay. in Montreal. Okay. So yeah, so it was it was right at the cusp right there. So you had made the announcement and then you just had a couple of mm -hmm. obligations to fulfill. Yeah, a couple of fun shows. Yep. I want to know the difference between pre-Canadian brass? Like, what was your outlook on life <laughs> as a trumpet player? What, what were your ambitions as a musician when you took that gig? And then how did those change over time uh, going into your new endeavors? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, those are exactly the things that changed the most. So as a student, and I think this is probably typical, those of you that are maybe students or remember what it was like to be a music student, but my goals were almost singularly to be in an orchestra. Um, because, well, I loved, I still love the rep and I think that was what drove it. And also in school, at least then it was sort of presented as the only path. And then there were other things you can do, but they were not, 
there weren't prescribed paths to, to actually, you know, I don't even know if that counts as a path, but it was a thing to do. Like winning a job was like a rite of passage and I love, 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 loved it. And so I never had even dreamed big enough when I was really young. Actually, this is sort of an odd aside here, but it, it relates. I wrote a, like when I was, I think I was maybe 10 years old. I wrote like a kid's book. It was a part of a school project and maybe I was a little older, 11 or 12. And at the end of the book, I signed my name and I said, Chris Coletti is a trumpet player. You know, I already had it in the bio, right? Chris Coletti is a trumpet player and which is one day to be a, a famous soloist or something like that. So I guess that was like a way of dating that I really wanted to do to dream big then. I didn't know about really orchestras yet. And I don't even think I really knew what being a soloist was. I think I just wanted to be you know, center stage or something like that. So, but who knows? That, and I actually, my mom has a gift. She gave it to me because now I have young kids and it's like perfect for their age to read. It's like about this little fire dog and printed it, printed it. So it looks published. And maybe I will publish it. Actually, it's cool to have that. I spelled the word congratulations wrong. It's, it's cute. <laughs> <laughs> was that too old to misspell that? I don't know. So I think when I was really young soloist, but really when I got serious, it became being in an orchestra and specifically a principal trumpet player. I, I love playing principal trumpet. And to this day, I think it's the greatest joy. I think is playing principal in an orchestra. I love it. And I did a lot of chamber music, of course, when I was in school and I loved that, but I never really saw the path for that. And um, I was sort of a little bit burned out with the excerpts at the same time when I was finished with my master's. I, so I did my master's at Juilliard. And I studied with Gould and he was incredible because he kind of helped me with that. He was like, it's okay. It's all right to feel like F all this and let's, you know, just do whatever you want. I remember my greatest fear, because I think fear would be kind of lying to not mention the fears I had at that point was that I was just going to like graduate because I was thinking about doing a, a PhD or, or something like that, mostly because I didn't know what I was going to do if I didn't have something lined up. And he was like, what are you worried about? You're going to just stop practicing and just drink and, you know, do other things all day. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm worried about. He was like, just do it. And it was just so freeing to hear him say that. And he's like, that's just part of, you know, you got to go through that stage. It's fine. And so I, I kind of like loosened up a little bit and, you know, I don't even know if this is really true, but the way he tells the story, actually, he has a new book, by the way, those listening, you should definitely read it. It's absolutely fantastic. It's called Gould on music. And he just hits the nail on the head on so many aspects of music. It's not just for trumpeters, but as a trumpet player, obviously it's very special to read his perspective because he's a legend as a teacher and a player. But anyway, um, in the book, he tells the story that I, I was going through all this and then I took an audition, didn't even tell him I was taking it. In his words, I didn't even practice. I, I still don't even know if that's true. And then I won it. And that was the one in Huntsville, Alabama, where I still play. And, and again, I don't know if that's exactly how it went down, but it's true that I kind of had this mental breakthrough that I was like, it's okay. You know, you don't have to have everything perfectly lined up. Just like go out there and maybe you'll do nothing for a little bit. Despite my fears, I wound up having that job lined up. But then after a year, I got into Canadian brass and my perspective changed because suddenly I was in a different league. Other than when I was a preteen, I hadn't even dreamed of. And so it was extremely intimidating. But obviously the growth that I got to experience from that experience was immense. And, and I think that you know, the exposure is the obvious benefit of all that, but the growth was the part that I think changed me the most being around musicians of that level. And then the biggest thing was playing for audiences that actually knew who we were and expected to see us and to see our music. And it was like really being in a band and having fans of you, right? even if they weren't necessarily fans of me, at least not then. And so that was amazing and that became kind of a like i got hooked on that aspect of it and and i'm 
pretty confident that I will never get to experience that again, unless I rejoin that group or another group like it one day, but there aren't many that are that, that have a fan base that are that dedicated. And so it's a different satisfaction at the end of a concert when you know, you nailed it. Like I just played um, Firebird, like the chamber music version. And it was just a total blast. I mean, I, I was at 100% peak enjoyment the entire concert, but afterwards the glory is not quite the same, right? Cause there's like a couple people that were like, Oh, that, you know, the trumpet sounded awesome. And I'm like, Oh, thanks. You know, that's really nice to hear as opposed to every single person wants your autograph. Every single person remembers the thing that you did best and you, you agree with them. You know, some of them are just blanket, nice job comments. That was exciting. And it made it feel like, wow, there's some direct relationship between the type of work I do in the practice room, which can be tedious and somebody noticing that it's, it often felt in school, like it's just to get the job and it's details that no one cares about other than that moment in the audition, which is frustrating. It doesn't even feel like a artistic endeavor. It feels like, you know, figure skating. So that was the big change. I would say that perspective shift and also the goals of realizing that, you know, you could think that big. So you have a, a certain level of anonymity outside of the Canadian brass in a way. And it's, you know, there's something nice about that. You probably don't remember this, but I think you and I first met in t- 2014 and you guys were in Korea and we had made arrangements <laughs> for you guys to do like a little, master class or something with the army band where I was stationed at the time because I've seen the Canadian brass many times I'm a long time big time fanboy concerts in the in the states there everybody wants to come meet you guys and get autographs and take pictures and whatever Korea was insane like everybody in the auditorium was lined up there was a line about a mile long just to shake hands you don't see that in in the United States you guys were complete rock stars yeah, it feels like you're the Beatles or something. They're right. like tearing at you. To, they had bodyguards escorting us to really? get to the, to the table to sign. <laughs> if not at that concert, it was on that tour. But, you know, and, I, and that's something that I think anyone that's performed in Asia can probably relate to it, you know, because part of it's that you're a foreign group, that you've come all these miles and it is a rare event. You know, we're not playing there every, you know, even in this, the United States is huge. So we, we played most of our concerts here, but it still felt like, you know, we were always on tour. We were, it was only a matter of time that we played in your city. But, you know, we, we only played in Korea. I was in the group 10 years, I think two or three times. Right. And in novelty. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. You know, we had a lot of big posters whenever you're playing a concert. But when in, in Asia, especially, you know, in Europe too, but in Asia, like the billboards that I see us on were just enormous. I mean, like the size of an entire building. It's like, wow, that's my face <laughs> is bigger than five of my cars. That's just my face. And there's four others, you know, huge billboards. Yeah, it, it was a thrill. And it, and that, of course, hypes up the audience, too, because they see that billboard and then they're like, oh, my God, this is the real you. And they only knew you from YouTube. YouTube counts as TV. You know, they see you on YouTube, but then they see you in real life. It's like I've had fans before I joined Canadian Brass that saw me playing an etude on YouTube that had a, enough video views that it kind of legitimized me on some level that is. Um, and they were like genuinely excited to see me in real life. And it was kind of kind of an eye opener. Like it's a powerful medium. Get us up to speed. What have you been up to since uh, leaving the fame <laughs> and the glory of touring with the Canadian brass in the last couple of years? Well, the biggest thing is I have two young kids. Yes. So my, yes. yeah, I have a, my oldest is about to be four in the fall and my youngest is going to be two in the summer. That was a, the biggest reason it, it got crazy to do that type of touring with, it was already crazy with one kid, but then I started teaching at Ithaca college um, and for a year, I did both. And that was absolutely insanity. For example, the Christmas season. So between 
Thanksgiving and actual Christmas is when we had the most concerts in a week. And I, I remember this particular tour, we had, I think, three nights where we didn't actually have a performance and it wasn't a travel day. There was enough time that that was just three actual nights that were literally off. We were just going to sit in a hotel. Those nights were the nights that I, well, and also the other players that had um, university gigs flew home and taught all the students, you know, all their lessons each one of those days. And then after all that, I came back just in time. We listened to juries and then I got to see my family and it was like, okay, this is not really going to mm-hmm. work. Right. You know, I didn't know what to do yet. But um, then when my second son uh, was on his way, it was like, okay, this is clearly not going to be an okay way to live. We're all going to lose our mind. I mean, it was a thrill to be able to do that. But I missed my family. And I think it wasn't fair for my wife and certainly not for my kids. Then I went to now I'm teaching. uh, That was a one year position. But now I'm actually on the tenure track at Ithaca. And it's great. I love it here. I love living here. I love the school love my students. And so that's my, um, the bulk of my thing. And performance-wise, you know, the timing of it all happened to be right before the pandemic. So it wasn't like I really missed, I think I missed five concerts since leaving Canadian Brass. Maybe, you know, it was really bizarre. I did a few recordings with them since then. One was remote, a few were in person, but it wasn't really the current members even. It was sort of just, it was just a project. And those are all, I can't say much. It's all still on, under the radar, but so I've still done a few things like that. But of course, a ton of virtual gigs. I did a couple of, I played for a toy company. I played, I record like a bunch of random stuff that you could do remotely. And only recently have concerts started picking up. I still am playing in Huntsville, of course, and they didn't actually close their season down. They they took a lot of safety measures and distanced, and they have a really huge concert hall. So it was possible to do this. And of course, things weren't ever as strict in Alabama as it was in other states. So um, for better or for worse, once I was vaccinated, I started going down there to perform as well. So that's been nice. And also I'm teaching at Rafael Mendez Institute, although we're not doing it this year. We're going to do a free concert because it was just, I think everyone zoomed out and we're going to do a free event, a couple of classes and a concert, and then do it in person, which is in Denver next summer. Everybody's zoomed out. I love that. Oh my gosh. I know I am. I mean, not that this is fun, but zoom yeah, I don't want to class. <laughs> what is it like teaching at Ithaca College? It's fantastic. It's nice to be settled in a, in a place and to have the students. I see them you know, every week, if not every day, well, the pandemic changed things a little bit. So it has this, uh, I feel like I, I can be a, a force in their lives, hopefully for positive, for the better. And, and, you know, I taught a long time adjunct, but it, it wasn't, you know, which I loved too, obviously, which is what made me realize I wanted to try something like this, but didn't have the same, I wasn't as involved. Obviously you come in, teach a lesson and then you peace out. And so it's, I love that. I love the colleagues. They happen to be, you know, this is the only place I've ever worked full time um, like this. So I don't know, maybe this is normal, but I don't, it doesn't seem like this is normal, but they're, they're like ridiculous musicians as well. And so I've been collaborating with some of them actually tonight and recording a piece by uh, Lily Boulanger, actually Nadia Boulanger's sister, who is an amazing composer in her own right. And this is a piece called Nocturne. It's one of two pieces for violin and piano. And I've transcribed it for trumpet. And um, I did it at a little concert a year ago, but I'm going to actually record it with one of the piano faculty. And he's like a star, you know, it's just unbelievable resources. So that's exciting. And then, of course, it's nice to have access to world-class hall and recording equipment and all that, you know. So there's waterfalls everywhere. So it's a really beautiful place as well. I feel really like I feel like I'm trying to sell you the sign here and you too can, you know. (laughs) It, no, it really is an un, unusually nice place. I feel so lucky. And, and 
it's equidistant between my parents and my wives. And so that, that, there's a lot of things. It's just really serendipitous. And where's your wife here. from? She's from Lake George and I'm from New York City. And so we're four hours from both, which is like, maybe it'd be a little nice to be a little closer, but it's literally halfway. So your students, what, because you said something when you were in Juilliard and uh, you went to Manhattan, right? Yeah, my undergrad. And you said basically is like, this is the plan. There's orchestras and then there's flipping burgers. Well, your students, what are some of their ambitions? What are their, some of their aspirations? What do they want to do with music? Well, that's, that's what I think is so exciting is that, well, so it's not a conservatory. The school started as a conservatory, but then became a, a liberal arts college. So it's got that root, but it's not a conservatory now. So it has some of that model, but again, it's liberal arts. So the, the students have a, a broader range of interests, which is incredible. So we have some students, our biggest program, our most famous program is the music ed. So a lot of them want to be band directors and it's, you know, one of the top programs in the country and, you know, virtually every single one of them gets a great job right out of school. So that's exciting because they have their heads on straight and they tend to be really great players. So that's what's to me. And again, I could be remembering this totally wrong, when I was a student, and it's probably, again, me projecting my own uh, shortcomings as a human at that age, but it felt like there was a lot of like, it didn't feel like we were as mature as they are. It feels like I'm with mature, smart, thoughtful kids. It's pretty un- pretty great. And then we have students that want to be, they're sound recording technology majors, and that's another really exciting program. And so they're, um, I think in other schools that have something like it, that's sort of their focus, but here they have to have an instrument. So the trumpet students that are doing that program, you know, they are already doing recordings that are not like a trumpet and piano necessarily, all sorts of stuff, electronic stuff, you know, although they have to record orchestras and they have, so they just have this like amazing knowledge that they bring to the studio and also just bring to lessons and the kind of rep that we do together. You know, I don't have to give them a sonata that's from the, you know, the quote unquote standard rep. You know, I don't really know if that matters to them. In fact, I'm pretty sure it doesn't. (laughs) So... And then, of course, we have performance majors, which is uh, what I was uh, as a student. They're aspiring from anything between being, a lot of them want to be in military bands or orchestras, which I think is probably, there's not much else anyway. And uh, those are tough gigs to win. But um, actually, a few of my students have already gotten jobs like that, which is a thrill, of course. Some of them want to be conductors. So it really is a range. And that's that's what I think is a stark contrast to what it was like being a conservatory where everyone wanted to be in an orchestra. I've spoken to a lot of people over the years, and that's just kind of a, a bit of a complaint with universities or conservatories. They don't really have any. I think I spoke with David Cutler a while ago. Basically, he was, he was in a doctoral program. His instructor said something like, just practice and you'll be fine. That's not exactly sound career advice. It's not. And it's hard to say much else because on the other hand, it's not really clear what they should do. You know? as, as you would know, probably maybe even better than I do when you're trying to, well, I should say this, if you're trying to be a musician, you don't have to even agree. You are an entrepreneur. That's your job. Now you happen to be selling a product that you're playing, but you are not just going to get good and be found. That's just not how it works. You have to make opportunities for yourself. And and the irony of all that is that by making opportunities for yourself, you're more likely to be invited by a cooler opportunity than you could even have created yourself anyway. And that's actually what happened to me. I was like, I'm screwed. There's nothing to do. 
I could keep auditioning for the, you know, the Met and wait until I'm in my 40s to win it. Like has had, you know, like Ray Rick and Minnie came to, to Juilliard and talked about that story. And then he quit the trumpet and he lived in his car for a couple of years. Like, oh, my gosh. I mean, it was an amazing story, but like you don't want to necessarily aspire to that type of, you know, struggles to get the dream gig. So instead, I started a brass group and it lasted a couple of months before I got in Canadian. But there was something about having projects in the pipeline. Brandon Ridenour was a great example. I mean, he, that guy just does everything. He's just doing stuff. And it's a thrill to work with somebody like that. You don't even have to be into music. Just somebody that's getting stuff done. You want to become friends with those people, especially if you're not one of those people. But obviously, if you are one of those people, you're more likely to be invited into the circle. By making projects happen, you wind up finding other, becoming part of other opportunities as well. So that's what I think they need to learn. And that's hopefully what they are learning in school right now. You can maybe speak to this because this is something that I've always kind of theorized about or something I've always wondered about because I don't have any experience as I've played with orchestras as a, I've been on the sub list and done like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, but I've never had like a full-time gig with an orchestra. And I want to get your perspective on this because you, and you, you touched on this because you said that a musician, especially at the conservatory level, you are an entrepreneur. Uh, you have a lot of the qualities of, of an entrepreneur. You have to be a self-starter. You're waking yourself up at five o'clock in the morning and, and practicing, and then you're mm-hmm. working on becoming a, 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 a good human being. And that's just part right. of part of it. And then, let's say you win a job, and then you get tenured. And this is just my perspective. And I want to get your take on this. Five years into it, and it's just a job. And you're not an entrepreneur. And everything that you've done to get to that gig, that holy grail, which is the orchestra job, all of a sudden, now you're just the low man on the totem pole. You're not able to exercise or flex those entrepreneurial muscles. Is there any truth to what I've just said? I should first say that the the orchestra job I have is is unique in that it's we travel to play there. It's almost like a festival orchestra. It's not full time. You know, we most of the people in the group travel to be there, either drive or fly. So it's always exciting when we when we're there. It doesn't feel like oh man, here we go again. You know, it doesn't feel like that. There's not enough concerts, and it's also we're all traveling to be there. It, it's actually kind of feels like a little bit of a vacation. So I'm a little, I don't have that. Exp- I've never experienced that myself. And I know that that is definitely something that some orchestral musicians go through, but the, the orchestral musicians that I know, you know, that are in the big or the big top five orchestras, somebody like Joe Alessi, I know pretty well. And, you know, he's one of the greatest brass entrepreneurs of all time <laughs> works his butt off and he's built a brand and he's, you know, He's got his old online school that's fantastic, you know, and he's also teaching at Juilliard. And he, so he's not typical in that way. He's got a ton of solo CDs. Phil Smith is also that way. So I could see that that could be a trap. But when it comes down to it, I don't personally know anybody that was so disillusioned by the idea of like the job being so amazing that at that point, then their life would be easier. And then that's that. They can stop doing all the stuff that got them to that point. I don't know those people, although I've heard the stories so I don't know. I'm, I'm like, I'm tempted to buy into that. And I'm sure that happens. But the ones that I know don't let up the stuff that got them to that position. And I think that's the, not only, obviously, that's how they're um, getting to have the success that continues beyond just getting the gig. But I think that's what makes life exciting. You know, that's what life's kind of all about. There is no arrival. Like we were, this is one of the things I'll give you a teaser. Those that are uh, 
not going to listen to the um, bonus notes, but that's what we were talking about. There's no real arrivals in life. It's just change. That's kind of unraveling. I think the big secret is that you can actually influence the direction that it unravels and you can decide to or not fight the things that are kind of like where gravity is pulling you or not. Some people are just like hands-on. They're going to fight to get exactly what they want. Others are the exact opposite, super passive. But I think the middle ground is really the, the, the magic where you could like, it's sort of like driving a Mario Kart where like you hit, you, you know, you could drive the race and not hit anything and not crash and you'll do really well. But if you also see in the distance, those like little ramps that accelerate you for like a couple of seconds, you can aim for those, you know, you're allowed to do that. It's not worth turning around going backwards to hit that. But you know, if you see it coming, just slightly adjust your direction, hit that. And then those, that's what I think the people that really seem to be getting the most out of life as well as getting the you know traditional success financially, career, fame, whatever it is that they like. Okay. So you did Canadian brass for 10 years. Yeah. Let's say it's year seven. Mm-hmm. What motivates you to keep getting better? What keeps it fresh and exciting for you? Yeah, that's great. So a group like that is the advantage of, you know, psychologically is that you don't ever, um, well, first of all, you, you're, it's more obvious that you're an entrepreneur and part of that process of making sure that you still have something to do, you know, and the challenge for us, this is probably unique for a group that's been around a long time and is already pretty successful, you know, but before I was even born, um, but it's like, okay, well, we know we can't keep doing what we've been doing. Like you can't just keep playing the same rap, um, but the audience expects, like, that's what it is. You know, you can't just like show up, like you can't put on Sesame street and see that the entire cast has been replaced and that the show is a completely different form it would be like, well, that's not Sesame Street anymore, right? So it has to be incremental. It has to be careful, but it also has to be innovative and exciting because that's what made the group famous in the first place was that they were innovative and exciting. So that was the type of challenge that I don't know if, again, that there's an arrival point like, ah, we figured it out. We should do this. It was constant experimentation. How much is too much new stuff? How much is too little? Um, and everything was on the table. Like, we thought, well, maybe we shouldn't do two-hour concerts with a intermission. Maybe we should just do a one-hour show, no intermission. Maybe we should just do a 45-minute show, like super short. We've done that, where we did like a super short show. And like for us and for the way the react, we were used to exciting reactions. I mean, in 10 years, I don't think we ever didn't get a standing ovation. It's just the show's built for that, you know? And that 45-minute show was on fire. Every single person was like, blown away included we were like this is crazy we're used to an excited audience but that didn't catch on which was surprising right you'd think that's something that's success but the world is not ready for short shows so everything was on the table so there was really you know it was actually harder to just relax (laughs) because you knew you know you had to do it and having a fan base that's waiting exciting to see what you're going to do next you know that was a really amazing motivator and they're still there they're still doing it so um for somebody that doesn't have that uh, that same situation, you know, maybe more likely you're in a group where you don't have an audience yet, and it's the same kind of thing. You know, you want to pick good questions that are intriguing to you, like, well, what do we have to do to, and then X, you can fill in the blank. Some groups want to say, what does it take for us to be able to play literally whatever we want, but still get shows? That's a, that's a different question than what does it take for us to be a touring ensemble with 100 shows a year that pay well? And that's like a good income. You know, that's, they might, they're going to have very different answers. And so if you're clear on what you really want about it, then it's, it's actually harder to not 
just obsess over answering that question, if it's a good question. So I hope that's a good answer because it really didn't ever feel like, uh, let's just relax. The other thing is like the playing aspect of it, like what made you not want to uh, stop improving? Um, and I think that part of it's lined with an assumption that like after you get really you know professional, you're kind of like you've figured it all on the trumpet. I have certainly not figured it all out on the trumpet. I, I always felt like I had a ton of weaknesses. And, you know, the nice thing about being in a chamber group, is you could you could design the rap and the show and you're sharing with a partner that's, you know, everyone I've played with in that group is in a, a total star. You know, you, you work with each other's strengths. Everyone has weaknesses and you work with each other's strengths so that you sound amazing. You know, that that's the point. You want everyone in the group to sound amazing. Um, it's harder in an orchestra. You can't hide as much, although the rep's not as hard. So you can still kind of hide any weaknesses you might have, but you don't really have as much choice in how you play it, what you play, you know, stuff like that. So I still feel like I'm, you know, hacking away at things that I'm not good at. I'm comfortable doing those things that I'm weak at on stage, but I'm not excited about it. I'm excited about doing the stuff that I sound great on. I know it'll go great even if I don't practice, but then there's other stuff that I'm like, if I haven't been working on that, this is not going to be exciting. It'll probably be okay, but so that's the other motivator. What do you? What is that? Fear? I don't know. It's just obsession, I guess. The Canadian brass, and we're just—I guess we're just talking about the Canadian brass a lot in this interview. But I know that uh, they have. You guys didn't tour as much as uh, probably your predecessors. I think in the '80s and the '90s, when I got to know them, they were just crazy. I think probably 300 days a year they were on the road. But you still had periods of time. You would have little pockets of the year where you were really busy. And I was just wondering, what are some of the things that you did uh, to keep your motivation level, but also your health? Because obviously traveling a lot is takes its toll on your health. What were some of the things that you did to um, just stay alert, stay alive, and just able to perform at a peak level night in and night out? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it was pretty regular. We probably had 75 like concerts and then maybe more events that were kind of sprinkled out. So it was pretty much the whole time, maybe the summers we had off, but we usually recorded. So it didn't feel so much like chunks, but um, so part of it was just, we had so many concerts. It was just, yeah, you're right. In the heyday, it was maybe a lot more than that. But the other thing was that they were also doing um, the original members that were there for that were like, yeah, that was too much. Like we were trying to build a career. I think a hundred was the number. Some would say 65, some would say a hundred was like the magic number. So it was a good number. Um, So in that sense, it wasn't that hard to stay in shape because we were just playing hard music all the time. But yeah, when we were touring, obviously the show to me, at least for me, some players are different. I, I didn't like to, I couldn't practice the day of the show. You know, I would just be shot. But um, so the type of things that I learned was um, how to practice without ever playing a piece, you know, learning by ear, learning by singing, um, working on musicianship skills. I mean, these are not new things, but maybe it's encouraging to hear somebody that's been doing this professional. I remember hearing Dave Taylor, the, bass trombone player he's a soloist was telling us that he had a recital and somebody had written a new piece for him and he and his career was always crazy and i always admired it when i was an undergrad having him as a brass quintet coach and he'd say oh yeah i got a brass quintet in france tomorrow but then next week i got one in italy and then on thursday i've got a you know i'm playing with an orchestra you know in the philadelphia orchestra then we're going on tour to japan and it was like man what the hell is this guy he's got a trio in france got a quintet in spain it's like go jumping all the place and he learned a piece learned a brand new world premier commission on the flight to the concert for a recital. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's, I mean, that's maybe too much, but you know, it's possible. So that type of work was really essential when you really couldn't practice that much before a concert. Um, but in terms of non-trumpet stuff, 
I've always found meditation to be hugely important and I've not been like super on top of it necessarily all the time, but when I was performing a lot, it was in very definitely part of my daily life. Um, physical fitness. At one point I kind of obsessed. I got into triathlons that I can't af- afford that amount of time commitment now with kids, but I really liked it and I missed some of that. Um, and then for my mind, I, I always liked to be learning a new skill. And so especially something that I didn't feel was, uh, that came naturally to me. And for a long time, that was Japanese. I loved Japanese. I, I, I don't know why, honestly, I when since I was really young, I had, I didn't even know what Japan was. I kind of wanted to learn it. And then I finally started studying it and, um, went to Japan. My wife is, she's actually genetically Korean, but her parents are from Japan. So she's culturally Japanese, although she's American, but so she speaks Japanese. So it wound up be kind, being kind of useful, but I remember reading an article that this is a long way around the answer here, but th- there was an article that I read that was very compelling that was called oh, why you shouldn't learn Japanese. And he goes on to explain how like it is an amazing language and it's worth it if you really love it. But when it comes down to it, out of all the languages that are exists for an English speaker, that's native English, it takes the longest to learn. They've got many alphabets. You've got to learn all these Chinese characters. Reading it's nearly impossible. It's all this stuff. And basically once you're done, the only thing you can do is use it in one small country. And it's like, damn it, you're right. You know, that's a huge amount of time. You're not getting back if you don't really want to do it. And so from there, I realized, you know, well, what is a universal language? Because everyone says music is, but it really isn't. You know, you got to learn, you know, if you've never heard, you know, the Beijing opera, you're going to be shocked. You know, it's not the same aesthetics. It takes some understanding to, to be able to appreciate it deeply. So I realized that that language was probably most likely math. And, you know, if there was an alien civilization that, you know, they would understand if they had anything similar to human expression, math would be the one. So I, so that was something I spent a lot of time on the road doing was, you know, using Khan Academy. I started taking calculus and, you know, physics classes because I was horrible at those things in school. And I also just didn't really care about it then, but now I'm fascinated by it. And the fact that math is able to literally explain everything to me is, and this is coming from a novice. Maybe that's not really true, but on the surface level, it's like basically some physicists, even for, for argument's sake, even believe that it's possible that math is, it's not just a description of nature, but it is the fundamental nature. And maybe, you know, maybe that isn't the case, but the fact that that's even a contender is fascinating to me. It's certainly not English, you know, <laughs> or any other language that humans have invented. Math is a language that we discovered. That's pretty cool. So, that was the three things. So physical fitness, singing, rhythm exercise, uh, meditation, and math. So you have used algebra since high school. I actually took algebra. I never took calculus outside of just studying it on my own. So that was like, it was a, a mental leap. And what's cool, remember that movie um, Arrival, when these aliens come? And the whole idea, so it's just, this is aliens visit Earth totally peacefully, but no one knows what's going to happen. Of course, the first thing they want to do is nuke it because they won't leave. Finally, they send, it's so cute. They send a a theoretical physicist and an interpreter. (laughs) Those are the two people from society. They decide to send in to to talk to these aliens and they discover that they have a a way of language that actually once they uh, are able to share that way of uh, communicating with the human race, like all languages, it changes the way you think by learning a new language, it changes the way you think. So humans are able to change the way they think and then become a peaceful world. It's kind of a bit of a stretch, but I definitely noticed that anyone that's studied another language, I mean, you have, 
it changes the way you think, right? The whole language changes the way you look at the whole world. So that, that, that for me, that's worth it. Living here in Vietnam, the Vietnamese language is extremely difficult. And you mentioned Japanese, it was very difficult. Vietnamese is just, I haven't really dove headlong into trying to learn it, but people who have tried to learn it, they'll say if you get one, just the slightest tone incorrect, they can't understand you. If someone's from Vietnam going to the United States and they're trying to learn English, you can sort of get what they're trying to say. And you can sort of, you can kind of get what they're saying. But if you just miss the slightest tone, they'll just look at you like a calf looking at a brand new gate. They don't know what to do. I've always wanted to go to Vietnam. And one of my heroes is, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Thich Nhat Hanh, who I've been reading a ton of recently. What's his name? Thich Nhat Hanh. He's like a, he's this Zen monk from Vietnam. He got a Nobel Peace Prize. I think he was nominated by Martin Luther King. I should look him up. Oh my goodness. I'm shocked you don't know who he is. No, I'm only kidding. No, but he is, he is, he's amazing. I mean, he's got like 150 bucks or something crazy. Tell me the name one more time. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to type it out. I'll spell it out. T- it? Oh, the chat's disabled. T- uh, yeah. T H I C H N A H T or maybe an N H A T. Yeah. And then H A N H H. If I got that right, I don't know. I should Wait. get something special. H A H N H. The last name, the last, uh, so it's three words. Well, let's call my, uh, executive secretary Basmati. How do you pronounce that? Tiknyatan. Tiknyatan. Yeah, yeah th- the first word means teacher. Okay. So, so it's Nyatan. That's interesting because I'm I'm working with a, I'm working with a pianist here in Vietnam. He's a really good pianist, and uh, that's his name, Nyatan. Oh, really? Yeah. And not Nyatan means something weird too. I, not something weird, but something kind of funny. If when you, do you does she know what it means? No, she's Iranian. No, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, the our pianist friend. Who I'm collaborating with—that's his name. Yeah, I mean, he's a very good pianist. Yeah. And I mean, in Vietnam, you're either Chung Chang Nat or Van. Yeah. Okay. Everybody has the same name. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, well, thank you, Executive Secretary Basmati, for your <laughs> for your contributions to our interview. <laughs> yes. And by the way, I don't know if this changes the pronunciation. It's H A N H. H A N H. I think you may have just written. Oh, A-N-H. that's Han. Oh, Han. Han. Not Han. Not Han. Not Han. Not Han. Not Han. Yeah, okay. That it's sounds like, more like it. It's written H A N H, but it's actually pronounced as H A N G. Yeah, if I were to say that in a Vietnamese Hang. restaurant, they would bring me a cheeseburger. So. <laughs> All right, Chris, we are sadly running short on time. Chris is like, sounds like he's got his fourth Red Bull. What are you talking about, sadly? I'm so happy this ended. 11 o'clock in the morning over there, and it's 10 p.m. over here, and I'm fading. And so, sadly, we're out of time. But, Chris, I have... This is like the... This is this whole interview has been the fireworks show, and this question is the grand finale. Are you ready? Yes. I want you to imagine... And close your eyes if you want to, but I want you to imagine, with all of your experience thus far, you have a complete blank slate you have a blank check and you can start any group that you want it can be any instruments it can be any number of uh, musicians Uh, it can be it can be students it can be professionals whatever 
What does this group look like? What are they playing? Where are they playing? Who are they playing for? The where is easy. Definitely outer space. I like space. Uh, let's see. Who? I think... Jeff Bezos. I <laughs> I'm just proud of him because I'm sure he's excited that he's going to get to fulfill his lifelong dream. It's nice hey, to see, you know. Good for him. But not, I don't know if he'd be the guy I chose. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I think that the 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 it's always hard to answer any question that's truly open ended. But I would say that I I would prefer it to be a really random, like really bizarre mixture, not typical mixture of instruments. You know, definitely some strings. What kind of strings? Eastern. Western? Um, I do love, I was going to say probably sitar. Ooh, also, the, the Iranian sitar. I love Iranian classical music. Um, so, yeah, why not? But that that's, I think, the direction I would probably go. I also love Western string instruments. I love violins, the instrument I started on it. I love it. And, you know, something, something like that, you know, and I, I, I don't have exact things. And then, you know, the musicians would be hopefully people that are, you know, cool with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. All right. Can you tell us your website one more time? So the one that is most useful is my blog, trumpetchrisblog.com. Okay. That's where I post stuff, advice for 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 musicians. Trumpetchrisblog.com. We've been speaking with Christopher Coletti, longtime member of the Canadian Brass, one of my favorite all-time groups. And uh, always a pleasure to speak with with Chris and get his um, just his insights and his experiences. Uh, Basmati, you look like you have something to say before we sign off. I remember you said you were the fanboy. Yes. Perfect ender. <laughs> all right. Well, you can find all everything that we talked about. Does that mean you always fan them <laughs> so they don't get tired? Oh, how about I finish this show and then you can make fun of me? Well, Sergi, you didn't answer me. Why don't I finish the interview? And you said you were the fanboy. I will finish the interview. And that means you get the fan and you run after them and you fan them. <laughs> I'm James Newcomb. You can find all the show notes at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com slash Coletti, C-O-L-E-T-T-I, jamesnewcombontrumpet.com slash Coletti. We're signing off. Thank you, Chris, for your time. Hopefully you do it again soon. All right. Thank you, James. Goodbye, Basmani. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Trumpet Dynamics tells the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. It also tells my own story. Join me on this journey through the world of making music and making life at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. I have blogs, videos, event calendar, and much more. And of course, if you just want to access this great podcast, just remember the URL, trumpetdynamics.com, and you're off to the races. Looking forward to the next time. Be well.